today on CityCast Denver. When protesters took to the streets in the summer of 2020 to call for racial justice and protest the murder of George Floyd, they were met with tear gas, pepper bullets, and according to a lawsuit filed by the ACLU, excessive use of force by Denver police. But they weren't just protesters. They were dental students, musicians, activists, artists, social workers, personal trainers, regular folks who got up out of their homes and marched together to call for change they believed in. That lawsuit went before federal court earlier this week. And ACLU attorney Sarah Neal is on the show today to explain the protesters' case and what it could mean for Denver and the rest of the country, too. Today is Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Sarah Neal, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thank you so much for having me. So you and I are talking Tuesday evening, and you just spent the day in the courtroom. How are things going? Well, things are uh, going fine so far. There, It's only the second day of trial. So trial started yesterday, and I've been in the courtroom um, both days. But of course, there's a lot leading up to trial, a lot of preparation. Um, so it's going well. All of our clients are... Um, are here and available and will be testifying. And, um, you know, I have to say it's been difficult for some of our clients as well to have to relive this over and over. So they've had to relive it throughout the litigation and then again through preparation for trial and now through presenting it to a jury. So um, I've been checking in with them as well. And some of them testified today, right? That's correct. Yesterday we had um, jury selection, and then opening statements from uh, both sets of plaintiffs as well as the defense. And then today we had testimony from three of the plaintiffs in the case. Can you describe a little of what the plaintiffs uh, shared in their testimony? Sure. Um, so this morning, Claire talked a lot about her reasons for being at the protest and her experience with protests in the past. And then, um, and that was similar for Stanford and Zach, all three of those plaintiffs testified today. And they talked about why they were there, um, the reasons for being there. And then of course, what happened to them, right? Their intentions for being there um, were to protest police violence, to protest the murder of George Floyd and to bring attention to the police violence around the country. And um, they were peacefully protesting. They all testified to that. And um, then they talked about their experiences, really just peacefully protesting, not doing anything to warrant any kind of response from the police. And then each of them experiencing pretty extreme and outrageous um, police violence. Can you talk a little bit about what happened to them or, or what they shared with that experience with police violence? Claire talked about being shot several times with rubber bullets and um, tear gas, uh, suffering from tear gas and kind of the, the difficulties experienced with that, the extreme difficulties experienced with that. I think people hear tear gas and think, that it's not that bad, but when you really hear somebody who's gone through it, it is 
very extreme and extremely scary. Stanford and Zach both suffered from the use of pepper ball guns and tear gas. Um, Stanford was sprayed directly in the face and had significant response to that very close proximity spray to his face. And then Zach testified this afternoon and talked about being shot without any warning at all and being shot with a, I think it was shot from a 12-gauge shotgun, but I believe what they shoot out of those are obviously not bullets, but a different kind of weapon. Um, But he was hit in the temple. Um, He was hit in the head. And so he was knocked unconscious immediately and taken to the hospital and has suffered significant injuries from from that. So I want to go back a bit and kind of talk about what events led up to this trial. Like, how did we go from the protests in 2020 to this full-fledged civil trial involving the Denver police? Sure. So um, while it does seem like a long time ago, the summer of 2020, in um, legal time and uh, <laughs> and judicial time, it's actually not that long ago, uh, given that we're already at a trial. So um, the fact that we got here this quickly is kind of um, impressive, actually. So in the summer of 2020, we all know what we were doing. Um, and of course, the protests happened. The staff at the ACLU clearly knew about what was going on. Um, At the time, we actually had three summer interns who were working in our legal department. Uh, One of them was actually participating in the demonstrations herself. And so we learned from her, as well as intakes that we get through our legal intake system, um, we learned about several people that had been injured. We were learning day by day, you know, hour by hour what was happening. And our staff got to work um, reaching out to these folks, finding out what was happening, um, getting more information you know, collecting the videos that they had taken themselves. Of course, you know, um, we were already in connection with Elizabeth Epps. Um, She's a candidate currently for the Colorado State House. Um, She's been an activist for a long time. She also has a law degree from the University of Virginia. And I was talking with her. Honestly, I was just worried about her a lot of times because I knew she was out there. And so checking on with her to make sure she was okay. And through that network, found these folks who had all, you know, suffered at the hands of the police, were shocked by what they had seen. Many of them were out for their first protest um, experience ever um, and did not expect the response from the police as it was. So uh, we quickly put together a case and brought on the attorneys with Arnold and Porter um, to try and challenge what seemed to us to be clear excessive force um, used against the protesters in Denver um, in violation of these folks' First and Fourth Amendment constitutional rights. We filed the case pretty quickly. I believe it was in June of 2020. So within the same month, June or July, we filed the litigation and discovery started. And then there was also this report that was released in December 2020 by the Independent Monitor's office that found, quote, extremely troubling actions on the part of law enforcement. Can you talk about how that report plays into this case? Certainly the report is relevant to the case. It details the incidents that we are challenging as unconstitutional. The author of the report, ultimately Nick Mitchell, who is the independent monitor, will be a witness in the litigation. But 
I agree with your um, assessment that they found that there was extremely troubling behavior by the Denver police. Uh, we agree with that. Uh, Nick Mitchell agrees with that. And we'll hear more from him at the trial. I don't know if you can comment on this, but there was pushback from the city about Nick Mitchell testifying because his report includes some memos between high-ranking law enforcement officials that sound pretty damning. And again, I don't know if you can or want to discuss it while the trial is happening, but is there anything that you can respond to in in relation to that? Ultimately, the judge ruled that Nick Mitchell's testimony is appropriate and will And he can be called as a witness later this week, and we will hear from him. There were some disputes over redactions in some of the memos that were produced. The judge ruled on those redactions, ruled that some of the redactions were appropriate, some were not. So Denver unredacted the parts that um, the judge ruled were not appropriately redacted. um, And those, the portions of the memos that were not redacted will be um, part of the trial testimony for Nick Mitchell. So the city's defense basically claims that officers had no choice but to use this kind of force because of, quote, unprecedented violence and destruction. How do the attorneys and the the protesters here, the plaintiffs, respond to that particular claim? The city of Denver, in their opening statements, did indicate that the jury will hear testimony about violence and or other bad behavior by protesters. And we don't dispute that there may have been bad behavior and violence and some uh, vandalism uh, during the protests. However, none of our clients did any of those things. And from the testimony that's been presented so far, the evidence seems to be that the clients were injured without any evidence that they did anything wrong. Sure, sure. I mean, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of people in an area at one time. Like, it's not everybody's doing the same thing. I mean, it it makes sense. Certainly. In in many cases, there were thousands of people, right? Um, But, you know, Denver itself has a policy that says when people are demonstrating, when there is a First Amendment demonstration happening, that it is their responsibility to see if there are crimes happening, and then separate the people committing those crimes from the remainder of the peaceful demonstrators and allow those peaceful demonstrators to continue in their protest. So what will the jury be like deliberating? What are they going to be trying to figure out? Like, is this a case of like, did DPD use force unnecessarily or sort of what are we looking at in the case? Sure. So this case brings um, claims based on the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. So we allege that the uh, city of Denver's custom policy and practice and failure to supervise and train their police department resulted in the constitutional violations to our clients in the form of uh, chilling their speech, uh, which is a violation of the First Amendment, um, restricting their ability to protest and demonstrate as is protected by the First Amendment, and then also specifically the uses of force against our clients were unnecessary and excessive and in violation also of the Fourth Amendment. Um, But suing the city and county of Denver for its custom policy and practice that we believe is unconstitutional and violates our clients' rights is the way to get at making changes or holding the city of Denver and the police department accountable for what they have done. Sarah, what makes this case in Denver unique? 
Well, I think the only unique thing about it right now is that it's the first one going to trial in the nation, as far as we know. Um, there's been many cases brought on behalf of people who were injured in the summer of 2020 during the protests, and uh, many of those cases settled. Uh, some of them may have gotten dismissed, um, and some of them may have been filed later and may be going to trial at some point soon. Um, but I think the allegations in many of those cases are probably very similar to what happened here. We just happen to have a case that has made it to trial. So if, if the plaintiffs win this case against the city, what is that going to signal for the rest of the country? Well, we hope that it signals that the police need to take a better and closer look at the tactics they use against peaceful protesters, particularly the use of what are called less lethal weapons, um, such as these tear gas and pepper ball guns and OC spray. And something that I learned is that less lethal weapons are not non-lethal weapons. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think that's such a misnomer because it's not like you're going to play paintball or something. These are serious things that can have long-lasting impacts on human bodies. Absolutely. And one of the plaintiffs who testified today actually did a contrast between what it feels like to go play paintball and get hit by a paintball um, and and to be hit by the pepperball gun like she was. And not to mention even the fact that paintball is something you do voluntarily for fun. Right. <laughs> this is not something that was, you know, uh, nobody volunteered to be um, subjected to these less lethal weapons in the way that they were by the Denver police. So we hope that it will cause the Denver police and other police departments around the country to look closely at what their policies are, what their training is, what their supervision policies are, and to do better. Sarah Neal, Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice. The trial is expected to wrap up in late March, and we'll be watching to see how it develops, especially as the city presents its response. So stay tuned. So it's, you know, still a long time to go, but we're, we're in it, and I'm proud of all the participants. Before I let you go, we've got one more thing for you today to help you feel a little more connected to our city. It's another segment of Voice on the Street, our partnership with Denver Street Paper, the Denver Voice. This month, producer Paul Caroli caught up with OG Denver Voice vendor Albert Bland. I've been a voice vendor for ever. <laughs> um, ba basically, though, ever since the paper was uh, in the boxes, like back in the day, that's when I was vending the voice. Albert started struggling with homelessness after moving here from Michigan over 20 years ago. I got tired of living like that. Just wanted you know, say, make a difference and doing something different. And that's when Albert had an idea. It was just this one fall morning. I didn't have nothing to do. And um, I had like, like 30, 40 bucks in my pocket. And I just wanted to do something different, you know, uh, to break away from the norm. Because the norm for me is, you know what I'm saying, going to the liquor store, you know, and doing what I do. And so I was like, man, I don't, you know, I just got through doing it. This stuff, that's getting old for me, you know what I'm saying? And I'm looking around, and I'm like, wow, you know, I can make a lot of money today if I really put some thought into it. And it was just leaves everywhere, you know what I'm saying? It's just, you know, a lot of yards looked like they could be clean. So I was like, what would I do? 
So I was like, man, it ain't nothing for you to just go and you know, say, utilize this 30, 40 bucks and um, knock on people's doors and see, you know what I'm saying, and see if they'll let you, you know, work for them. So, but the thing though is, is you got to get a rake and some, and um, you know, some, some, some tools, that is, you know what I'm saying, to get, to get me going. So, you know, I mean, the norm for me is, is to catch somebody, just walk pe past people's properties and just swipe one, just, you know, basically steal a, a rake and a shovel and a broom or whatever. But I'm like, nope, 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 we're going to do this. Let's do this right. So I go to Home Depot and um, I purchase a broom, a rake, and like uh, like about 20 bags, those compost bags. And then I just start knocking on people's doors. And I got a positive response. Couldn't believe it. You know what I'm saying? I think I might have I might have turned around and made like almost 200 bucks just raking leaves. That's where it all started, you know. Uh, like I said, you know, I was just knocking on people's doors. And I was like, man, if I could do it like this, man, what? you know, so I know I could earn myself a truck. And six months later, Albert's landscaping business was so successful that he was ready to go to the dealership. And... Uh, he was, and the dealer was like, man, do you got any good credit or whatever? He was you know, asking me all these basic questions to purchase a vehicle. I was like, no, nah, man, this is my first one. And he was like, well, how much money you got? I was like, well, I got like four or five grand on me right now. He's like, what? <laughs> you have four or five thousand dollars right now? Man, what, kind, what truck are you looking for? You can drive any truck you want right now. Go ahead and give it a test run. Now, after 10 years of running his business, Albert says he has the voice to thank. I'm going to thank the women that runs this news agency because if it wasn't The Voice, I'm going to tell you something right now. I don't know where I would probably be. And, um, and, and, and to the people, to the public that supports the paper. I mean, because it, it, it brought the best out of me, you know. So, um, so just continue to support The Voice public, okay? Because uh, we can't do it without you. what else is happening in Denver today. Gas prices across Colorado are on the rise. As of Sunday, they were averaging more than $3.70 a gallon. According to the Colorado Sun, regular gas broke $4 per gallon on average across the U.S. for the first time since 2008. And in other sad transit-related news, Turin Bicycles will close after half a century in Denver. In a tale as old as the city, Denverite reports that Turin sold their Cap Hill building and the new owners raised the rent. And finally, Denver lost a great trumpet and cornet player yesterday. Ron Miles was many things to many people. But to me, he was an incredible musician and a really rad professor. I was lucky enough to take Ron's music history class, Jazz Styles, at Metro back in the day. I know many of my friends in the Denver music world and Ron's family are hurting right now and I'm sorry. So as a tribute to Ron, we're going to play a track from his latest album, 2020's Rainbow Sign. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us, rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter, where today you'll get Peyton's hot and fresh takes on the latest Denver dining scene gossip. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Um.